Hello, this is Dr. Peng Xuanqian, the editor in chief of Heart Rhythm. This is a summary of the July 2022 issue of the journal. The first article is Patterns of Care for First Detected Atrial Fibrillation Insights from the Get With the Guideline Atrial Fibrillation Registry. Of the 86,759 registry patients with atrial fibrillation, 17.8% had first detected atrial fibrillation. Overall, 51.3% of patients were treated with rate control and 48.7% with rhythm control at admission. Patients with planned rhythm control had a shorter length of the stay and were more likely to be discharged home than to a facility. A higher percentage of patients with planned rhythm control were discharged on anticoagulation than those with planned rate control despite a higher underlying stroke risk in the rate control group. The authors conclude that less than half of the patients with first detected atrial fibrillation received rhythm control at admission. Given recent trial results, further studies should assess the long-term impact of rhythm control on patients' symptoms and quality of life, cardiovascular morbidity, and mortality. The next paper is Exercise Training in Heart Failure with Reduced Ejection Fraction and Permanent Atrial Fibrillation, a Randomized Clinical Trial. 26 patients with a mean age of 58 years were randomized to exercise training or no training. At baseline, no differences between the groups were found. Exercise improved peak oxygen consumption, slope of ventilation per minute, carbon dioxide production, and quality of life. Left atrial dimension decreased. The authors conclude that exercise training can improve exercise capacity, quality of life, and cardiac function in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and permanent atrial fibrillation. Up next is how to use bipolar and unipolar electrograms for selecting successful ablation sites of ventricular premature contractions. This cohort consisted of 66 patients with VPCs presenting for ablation in a bigeminy, trigeminy, or quadrigeminy pattern. In endocardial VPCs, the first rapid bipolar deflection corresponded with unipolar minus DVDT max occurring 20.5 milliseconds and 16.0 milliseconds respectively before the QRS onset. In successfully ablated intramural VPCs, the first rapid bipolar deflection preceded the QRS onset by, by 14.0 milliseconds and coincided with first rapid unipolar deflection. The authors conclude that the mapping of VPCs should be guided by the first rapid bipolar deflection that corresponds to a similarly early unipolar deflection but not with minus dv slash dt max. The next, up next is a castor ablation improves outcomes and quality of life in Japanese patients with early stage atrial fibrillation, a retrospective cohort study. The Kyo Interhospital Cardiovascular Studies Atrial Fibrillation registered 3,318 patients with AF newly diagnosed at or referred 
to participating hospitals. During a median follow-up period of 730 days, patients who underwent castor ablation had a lower risk of primary outcomes, with a significantly lower risk of heart failure hospitalization and improved atrial fibrillation effect on quality of life scores than did those who received medical therapy. The authors conclude that in patients with propensity score matched early-stage real-world atrial fibrillation, Castor ablation was associated with a lower risk of adverse clinical events and improved quality of life as compared with medical therapy. Up next is termination of macro reentrant atrial arrhythmias by pacing stimuli without global propagation. Electrical stimulation during ventricular tachycardia resulting in tachycardia termination without global propagation or TWGP, is a well-recognized phenomenon. However, there is a positive literature showing a similar phenomenon in atrial arrhythmias. The authors studied 34 patients in whom stimulation during atrial tachycardia flutter resulted in TWGP. Of the 34 patients, 12 or 29% had caval tricuspid isthmus dependent atrial flutter, and the 22 or 71% had other atrial arrhythmias during which TWGP was seen. The authors found that the termination of macro-reentrant atrial arrhythmias by pacing stimuli without global propagation identifies a narrow diastolic isthmus at which castor ablation is highly effective. The next one is Predictors of per, uh, perforation during lead extraction, results of the Canadian lead extraction risk or CLEAR study. The authors studied a total of 2,325 consecutive patients underwent extraction of 4,527 leads. Perforation rate was 2.7% and the 30-day mortality was 1.6% with mortality of 0.4% due to perforation. The authors found that the risk factors associated with perforation that need extraction include no history of cardiac surgery, female sex, preserved left ventricular ejection fraction, lead age greater than 8 years, and greater or equal to 2 leads extracted, and diabetes. Coming up is successful avoidance of uh, superior vena cava injury during transvenous lead extraction utilizing tandem femoral superior approach. The authors included consecutive 131 patients undergoing transvenous extraction of at least one pacemaker, defibrillator, and lead with implant duration of greater than one year, in which tandem femoral superior technique was used as the initial extraction strategy. They found that a tandem femoral superior approach to lead extraction effectively eliminated superior vena cava injury. This is a safe and effective technique for transvenous lead extraction. The next one is age-related differences and associated midterm outcomes of subcutaneous implantable cardioverter defibrillators a propensity-matched analysis from a multi-center European registry. Two propensity-matched cohorts of teenagers plus young adults less than 30 years old and adults greater than 30 years old were retrieved from the 
E L I S I R registry. Teenagers plus young adults represented 11.0 percent of the entire cohort. At the univariate analysis, young age was not associated with increased rates of inappropriate shocks. At the multivariate analysis, use of the SMART PASS algorithm was associated with a strong reduction in inappropriate shocks, where arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, or ARVC, was associated with higher rates of inappropriate shocks. The authors conclude that in a large multicenter registry of propensity-matched patients, Use of the SICD in teenagers or young adults was safe and effective. The rates of inappropriate shocks and the compli- complications between cohorts were not significantly different. The only predictor of increased inappropriate shocks was a diagnosis of ARVC. Up next is atrial ventricular junctional ablation <coughs> in patients with conduction system pacing leads. A comparison of his bundle versus left bundle branch pacing leads. 105 AVJ ablation procedures were performed in 98 patients. Roughly half of the patients received his bundle pacing, and the other half LBB area pacing. The mean procedural time and mean fluoroscopy time were significantly longer in the HBP versus LBBBAP group. The authors found that AVG ablation in the presence of an LBBAP lead is associated with a higher success rate and fewer acute and chronic lead-related complications. Conduction system pacing was either his bundle pacing or LBB area pacing preserved the ventricular systolic function in patients with refractory atrial fibrillation post AVG ablation. The next one is prognostic impact of permanent pacemaker implantation following transcatheter aortic valve replacement. A total of 659 patients were included in the study. A total of 104 patients, or 15.8%, needed PPI following TAVR. The authors found that new PPI following TAVR was not associated with overall survival or cardiovascular survival difference at two years. However, receiving a new PPI in the setting of low left ventricular ejection fraction adversely impact midterm cardiovascular survival. Up next is six related differences in the prognosis of patients with cardiac sarcoidosis treated with cardiac resynchronization therapy. This multicenter cardiac sarcoidosis survey included 430 patients divided into. Those treated with primary CRT or upgraded CRT from the pacemaker. Among them, CRT group has 73 patients, and the control group has 357 patients. The authors found that in cardiac sarcoidosis patients with CRT, heart failure death-free survival was similar between sexes. However, females exhibited better ventricular arrhythmia event. Sudden cardiac death, appropriate device therapy, and cardiac adverse event-free survival than males. The next paper is skin sympathetic nerve activity in patients with chronic orthostatic intolerance. 
The authors used an ECG monitor with a built-in triaxial accelerator to simultaneously record skin sympathetic nerve activity, or SKNA, and the posture in ambulatory participants. They then compared the symptoms with SKNA bursts or tachycardia. They found that in participants with chronic orthostatic intolerance, the SKNA bursts associated with symptoms had higher burst frequencies, longer burst durations, and larger mean burst areas than did bursts during asymptomatic periods. The authors conclude that SKNA bursts are a highly specific, albeit insensitive, symptomatic biomarker for chronic orthostatic intolerance. Up next is instance of morbidity and mortality in a cohort of congenital complete heart block patients followed over 40 years. 114 subjects were included. ADA or 77% underwent pacemaker implantation. 26 subjects or 23% reached a primary outcome, including 7 or 6% died and 14 or 12% were diagnosed with heart failure and or cardiomyopathy. Median time from diagnosis to primary outcome was 3.1 years. Fetal diagnosis had a higher associated hazard of heart failure and or cardiomyopathy. The authors conclude that in 114 subjects with congenital complete heart block, 23% reached the composite outcomes of cardiomorbidity and mortality with no significant association between age of diagnosis, fetal diagnosis, and the maternity antibody status with composite cardiac morbidity and mortality. Coming up is transvenous laser lead extraction in patients with congenital complete heart block. Overall, 16 patients were included. The mean age at transvenous device implant was 13.8 years. Mean patient age at transvenous lead extraction was 34 years with a mean duration of lead implant of 19.2 years. A total of 38 leads were, repro- were removed with complete procedural success achieved in 14 of 16, or 87.5%. In conclusion, patients with congenital complete heart block represent a unique cohort highlighted by several generator changes, lead revisions, and abandoned leads at a young age, along with a long duration of lead dwelling time and a high prevalence of lead malfunction requiring transvenous lead extraction. There may be a high risk of major complications during transvenous lead ex- extraction. The next paper is reduced motion external defibrillation. Reduced subject motion was equivalent defibrillation efficacy validated in swine. A reduced motion external defibrillator, or RMD, was constructed by integrating a commercial defibrillator with a tantalizing waveform generator. A long-duration, low-amplitude tantalizing waveform slowly stimulated the chest musculature nature before biphasic pulse, reducing muscle contraction during the shock in swine. Two forward limb acceleration peaks occurred during both the tantalizing waveform and the biphasic pulse, indicating rapid and slower nociceptic 
or pain sensation, nerve fiber activation. Relative to conventional defibrillators, RMD defibrillators maintain rhythm restoration efficiency with drastically reduced subject motion. These findings suggest that the RMD may reduce the pain during defibrillation. The above original articles are followed by three contempor contemporary reviews. The first one is leadless left ventricular endocardial pacing for cardiac resynchronization therapy, a systematic review and a meta-analysis. The authors conclude that the efficacy of leadless LV endocardial pacing for CRT supports its use as a second-line therapy in patients in whom standard CRT is not possible or has been ineffective. Improvements in safety profile will facilitate widespread uptake in the treatment of these patients. A second review article is titled How to Perform Extrathoracic Venous Access for Cardiac Implantable Electronic Device Placement. Detailed description of techniques. This review provides a detailed description of the anatomy, technical considerations, and the relative advantages and disadvantages of each of these extrathoracic venous access sites. A third review is titled Remote and Wearable ECG Devices with Diagnostic Abilities in Adults, a state-of-the-science scoping review. The authors summarized technical logistics of signal quality and device reliability, dimensional and functional features, and diagnostic value. The review articles are followed by five research letters. The titles are as follows. 1. Tricuspid regurgitation outcomes in left bundle branch area pacing and the comparison with right ventricular septal pacing. 2. Adverse events associated with atrial clip device for left atrial appendage occlusion, a Food and Drug Administration MAUDE database study. 3. Longevity of Model 3501 Subcutaneous Implantable Defibrillator Leads in Clinical Practice. 4. Urgent Caster Ablation for Treatment of Refractory Symptomatic Atrial Fibrillation. Healthcare Utilization and Outcomes. And number 5. Impact of Radiation on Inpatient Outcomes in Patients with Breast Cancer and Atrial Fibrillation, a Nationwide Analysis. The journal also online published an expert consensus statement on the state of genetic testing for cardiac diseases. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For Hard Rhythm, I'm the Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Peng Shen Chen.